very thankful. Let's uh, consider uh, the theme of hope this morning. We are going to be looking at some of the prophecies that, that tie through the pages of Scripture thousands of years, anticipating uh, hope. And I want to begin with a story of a missionary. A story is told of a missionary who was sitting in her second story window, and she had received the mail uh, earlier in the day, and she was upstairs looking through, and she opened one card, and as she opened this letter, um, a crisp $10 bill fell out and onto the floor, and uh, she was thrilled with the kindness of the person who gave that uh, bill to her, and as she uh, was also looking out the window from where she was standing, she noticed a man down below who was shabbily dressed and, and, and uh, looked like he had, had seen better days. And it, she just was moved within her heart to take that $10 bill, slip it back into the envelope, and she quickly uh, wrote on, the, on it, don't despair, and then tossed it out the window ahead of him. Well, when, she, when he saw the, the envelope, he picked up the envelope, and he looked at it, he looked up at her, he tipped his hat of thanks, and he walked away. And well, the next day, she received a knock at the door. And there was the gentleman whom she had expressed some benevolence to. And he handed her a, a little stack of bills, and uh, she looked a little bit startled as to what this might mean or what this could be. And, and so uh, he said to her, well, uh, that's the 60 bucks you won, lady. Don't despair, paid five to one. <laughs> it's quite the matter of perspective there. But hope and despair are kind of like fraternal twins. They're like um, a Dr. Jekyll and a Dr. Hyde. They can reside actually in the same person based upon the, the object and the intention of one's focus. And so we actually project into the future what we believe will come to pass. And so the emotion of hopefulness or the opposite of despair may come about within us based on what we're looking to for our confidence. One theologian described Christians as being hopers <laughs> because we're in, there's this impregnant idea within us that uh, we, we are, are really impatient with the death and the evil that we experience because we believe that there's something better in the future. We're hoping for a greater day to come. And that's honestly been put within us by the Holy Spirit and the promises of God, which promises a new day dawning. Well, there is also the reality that we live in a sin-cursed world. And hope is desperately something that all of us need. People are looking for something to put their hope in. So as Christians, I think it's helpful for us to remember this, that this is one of our greatest opportunities to be a light in a dark world, to be able to point people to the hope that is ours in Jesus Christ. And so this morning, I want us to think through the pages of Scripture. We're going to begin at the very beginning. Let us turn in our Bibles to Genesis chapter 3, and I want us to see a first promise of hope that occurs in the midst of the very first darkness. 
In Genesis chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, God had created the world without any sin, without any disease, without any death. God had created man with a free will. This will could choose any of the fruit in the garden. But when man chose to look and to listen to the words of the serpent, he was plunged into darkness, into despair, into bondage, the bondage of sin. And so, we have in the midst of necessary punishment, a curse given, but also in the midst of giving this curse, there is hope. And so, let's look at verses 14 and 15. God is speaking to the serpent, and in verse 14, He says, because you have done this, it is deceived humanity, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts field, and on your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And so, in this description of a curse, there is in it the seeds of hope, But it's important to understand that the serpent here led humanity into perpetual bondage. Romans chapter 5 and verse 12, um, we see these words written by Paul centuries later reflecting on this moment when he said, therefore, just as sin came into the world uh, through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all have sinned. This is a description of the original sin and the product of that sin, which creates within us all an inability to look to God with a heart of love. Instead, we have fear, we have anxiety, we have despair. And to cope with our sin, what we do is we turn to ourselves or we look to false gods that promise us relief from the despair that we feel. And we tell ourselves that we're just fine the way we are, but the reality is we're not just fine. Because hope cannot come until we give recognition to the reality of sin and the solution for it. Now, Genesis 3, 14 to 15, we have what theologians call the proto-evangelium. It's the first mention of the gospel, proto-first evangelium evangelistic, the evangelical, the good news. This is the very first mention of the gospel, and it comes, as I said, in the midst of hostility, in the midst of enmity with God. God declares here that there is going to be war, war between the offspring of the serpent, war between the offspring of the woman. There'll be two seeds, actually, in conflict. And the word offspring here the word offspring is, is naturally plural in its meaning. The people of God is what's being expressed here, will be at war with the people of Satan. Now, the second part of the verse talks about a prophecy or the representative of the people of God, the two sides of the conflict. There's going to be a bruise that occurs to his heel, and yet there'll be a, a bruise or a, 
mortal wound to the head of the offspring of the the serpent. Which is the greater of bruises? To be wounded in your head or to be wounded in your heel? Now, they're on two separate poles, if you will, on opposite ends. But the greater damage is going to be the the one who takes the blow to the head, and that is going to be for the serpent. And this actually is the first ray of hope, the first ray which tells us that Satan's kingdom will appear to be winning the day. But there will be coming one day a victor who will bring a death sentence to the offspring of Satan and his kingdom. Now, we live in a world that is governed by Satan, and we all experience the curse, but there is one day coming a victor who will bring all of this curse to an end, and this is the first ray of hope that we see in the pages of Scripture. Let's move on because like all stories, it doesn't end here. And as we are learning in Sunday school, um, this a progression of, of theme throughout the pages of Scripture. And we come to Genesis chapter 12 this morning to a second promise of blessing, of blessing. In chapter 12, verse 3, the offspring of the serpent, the offspring of the woman have been at war. And we see that earlier on. You have Cain killing Abel. We have violence increasing upon the earth. We have Noah coming as a savior for his family. We have a tower that's destroyed because there's an attempt to to fight against God. And we have here God developing his plan. He intends that the seed of the woman is going to bring blessing to the nations of the world. And in chapter 12, verses 1 through 2, we read these words. Now, the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. You see in these verses, God actually at work to reverse the effects of the curse. God handpicks Abraham and calls him out of Ur, and he's a weak person actually. He doesn't have a whole lot of faith, but he's destined to be a man of faith, an example for all of us, of all who would put their trust in faith in Jesus Christ. It's not because Abraham has great ability of himself. Rather, it's God in his graciousness is here deciding to cause him and his offspring to be a blessing to all the nations. And in these promise, we, 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 we have a glimpse of the one who is coming. He's not only going to be the victor that bruises Satan's head, he's also going to be the one who brings blessing. Now, when we think of blessing, we tend to think in terms of material gifts and wealth, don't we? I mean, we, we can, well, some of the country songs talk about blessing, and that, uh, sorry, that's a rabbit trail, but tend to, country and western tends to kind of pine over the, the, the despair, but then look for blessings and material things, Okay? 
But that tends to be where we're thinking. But blessings, real blessing, doesn't come out of materialism. It comes out of a spiritual quality. In fact, Psalm 1, verse 1 through 3, describes the psychological and the spiritual and emotional blessing of walking with God. Psalm 1, put your finger here. I don't think this is on the PowerPoint, so I would encourage you to look at Psalm 1 with me. Turn over to Psalm 1. Blessing is greater than money. It is greater than power. And we read, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water, that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The word prosper there actually speaks of of bounty, not in terms of financial, but in stability. There's an emotional quality that's, that's vested within a person who finds God and him alone as a blessing. And so, the one who is going to come through the line of Abraham is going to bring this emotional stability, a healing to the land and to the peoples. Let's turn back to Genesis 12 here. It's important to reflect on this point. This blessing comes about because a son of Abraham will become a blessing to the son of Adam, the sons of Adam. There's going to be a future son who's going to bruise Satan's head, but he's also in the end going to triumph over the grave. He's going to bring real blessing to the world. Let's go actually forward in our Old Testament to 2 Samuel chapter 7, in which we see a promise of a kingdom. First Samuel chapter 7. Several hundred years later, God appeared to another son of Abraham, son of Judah, the son of Jesse. David was his name. And on David's heart, the second king of Israel, the one, though, that we think of often as the first king because he was the greatest of kings, on his heart was laid a desire to build a house for the Lord a place where all the nation could gather and to worship. But God came to him and told him that instead of David building him a house, God was going to build David a house. Many of us dream of having a house to live in, especially as you're younger in life. I suppose as we get older in life, we despair of having a house. We don't want to maintain it or upkeep it. But the reality is uh, we are in a mobile society, and some of us may only live in a house for a very short period of time. Uh, I think of um, my wife and I think about all the different houses that we have lived in through the years, and maybe that you've had the dream of having, I'm going to buy that one house, and I'm going to stay there for all of my life. That doesn't happen these days. So, when God says that He's going to build 
David a house, what he's actually talking about here is not a physical house. He's actually talking about a family dynasty of kings. A family dynasty of kings. Let's read those verses. In verse 12 to 13 of chapter 7, I sure hope I have the right verse. Oh, I'm in second. I need, I, did I say first Samuel? Let's go to second Samuel. Did I say second Samuel? All right, I was in the wrong place. You were in the right place. Second Samuel 7, verse 12 to 13, it says, And when your days are fulfilled, that is, when you come to the fullness of your days, and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up from your offspring after you, I will raise up from your offspring after you who, will, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So when God is saying he's building a house and a kingdom from him, he's talking about a dynasty line of kings. Now, in the British Empire, there have been eight houses of dynasty. Eight different houses which have ruled over a thousand-year period in English history. The longest-lasting house was the Plantagenets, who had 245 years of family succession. That's significant because the House of Windsor has lasted 117. That's the current uh, Queen of England and her family. They've existed for 117 uninterrupted. Now, the house of David and his kingdom is not going to have breaks. In fact, there is going to be a king that will endure throughout all time. Several hundred years of self-rule, actually, though, in Israel's history, though, have proved to be quite challenging. And so, actually, when you read through the kings and the stories of the kings, you come to a point where the kingship appears to be over. In fact, um, Jeremiah, in his writing, said this. He said to the last king of Israel, he said, Write this man down as childless, a man who shall not succeed in his days. For none of his offspring shall succeed in sitting on the throne of David and ruling again. In Judah. And so, David is promised a perpetual kingship. What is going on here? When you get to the book of Jeremiah and the nation is going to be tossed out of the land, it appears as though God has not kept his word. But the reality is that the kingdom was not in the end only a political kingdom, it was also a spiritual kingdom. God was going to bring a new kind of king, one that has no beginning and no end. And as we read through the book of Matthew, we won't turn there this morning, but I encourage you to read the book of Matthew sometime. You read the sequence of generations that lead to Jesus. And after Solomon, it doesn't go to Solomon's son as the next reigning uh, king, the one that we read in the pages of Scripture, turns to another son through Nathan, another son of Solomon, and picks up and brings us right to Jesus. And so what looks like an impossibility with, with man is actually very possible with God. And he brings not just a, a, 
a person who has a, a, a birth date and a death date. He brings us a person who lives forever and ever and ever. So let's move forward in our prophecies. I may have gotten ahead of myself. But let's go to Isaiah chapter 7. Isaiah chapter 7. In our way of thinking, children are a necessity to, to carry on a lineage and a seed. And in Isaiah chapter 7, we're, talk, we're coming up to that point where it looked like the whole nation was going to collapse and fall apart, and the kingdom was, was truly on the edge of collapse. Enemies were all around Judah. The north kingdom was gone. Judah was alone. And Isaiah is speaking to King Ahaz. And he offers Ahaz an opportunity to have a sign to know that he can trust God no matter what would come, that he would deliver Ahaz from all of his enemies that were mounting around the city. And Ahaz declines. In fact, he says, I'm not going to test the Lord. Why would I ask for a miracle? And really, it was a statement of faith because the man of God was telling him he was supposed to ask for a miracle. And so in Isaiah 7 verse 10, we read this. And again, the Lord said, spoke to Ahaz, Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, Hear then, O house of David. You see that? O house of David. Is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold the, Lord, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. And so, in this declination for a miracle, Isaiah says, no, the God's going to give you a miracle. He's going to give you an impossibility. He's going to a, uh, there's going to be a virgin who is pregnant. The sign that he gives is absolutely impossible. In fact, the way it's stated in the Hebrew, in the original, it's a contradiction of terms because a virgin cannot be pregnant at the same time. It just doesn't happen. And so what he is demonstrating here is that God is able to do abundantly above what we might ask or what we might think. God is all-powerful. He is able to take a dead root and bring life to it again. He is able to do anything that we might ask him. So, the blessing of Abraham is going to come through the house of David. It's going to look like the house of David is on collapse, but in fact, God will do it his way. He will cause a child to be born through a supernatural work of conception to some descendant of David. And so, the son who was born... It's going to be so unique that all will have to look at the Son and conclude that God is with us, Emmanuel. Let's move forward a couple chapters and see the prophecy of the light. Chapter 9, verses 1 to 2. And I won't read all of this text. It's a, where some of Handel's Messiah comes from. We'll pick up some of this text as we get to Christmas Eve. But the beginning few verses are sometimes overlooked. 
And it's a very good description of this child, this light who will come. In chapter 9, verse 1, it says, But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun, the land of Natali. But in the latter time, he will make glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. And the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them the light shone. You'd have to be almost asleep to miss that in our town there's been a lot of controversy over the Irving Cliff Star and the cross. And maybe you've heard and maybe you've noticed some of the stars that have been popping up all over town. And there is actually... Maybe you're aware of this, or maybe you're not. There's a, where, there's a movement to remove the star by an atheist group called uh, Freedom From Religion Coalition. And it really does point to the reality that we are an increasingly dark society. The light is either going to shine brighter, or it's going to be snuffed out. But the reality is that the light of the world has come and we all as Christians bear the light within us as a beacon of hope to a lost world. John chapter 3, verses 19 to 20, and I think there is a PowerPoint slide for this. No? All right. Turn with me in your, with your finger. Put your finger here and turn with me to the book of John chapter 3. John chapter 3. Verses 19 to 20, we hear Jesus telling Nicodemus about the reality of this world that we live in and the darkness that is within all of Satan's offspring. And in verse 19 to 20, we read this, and this is the judgment the light has come into the world, and people love darkness rather than light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. Jesus is telling Nicodemus that this is the character of a sin-cursed world. Yet there are those with whom God reveals himself to as a light. And those who rejoice in the light do so because they have a heart that loves God. And what we have here is Jesus commenting on himself and also the prophecy of Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 9. There have been throughout history many little lights that have been pointing to Christ and to God. Leading up to Jesus' birth, there were so many prophetic lights. There were men like Isaiah with whom this prophecy is found. There are Jeremiah and the, many of the minor prophets. And even John the Baptist was one of those lights. But when Jesus came, he was a great light. And the region of Galilee saw all of his miracles... And as he taught some of his most famous words in Galilee, people were exposed to the truth. But yet, many loved their darkness rather than the light. 
And in this sin-cursed world, though, there are desperately needy people who are hungry for the light. And we ought to be as believers who have the light of God dwelling within us, God himself through the Holy Spirit, we ought to be vibrant witnesses. It would be better for us not to be caught up in political issues in our community, but to turn this world upside down by every single one of us bearing the candle of God's hope in all of our workplaces and, and, and places of influence. That is the way in which the people of this community will know who is the true light and who is not. And this is our hope. And as we shine, God will bring people to himself. Let's turn to one last prophecy which anticipates Christ. In Micah chapter 5, this one's going to be a little bit harder if you're unfamiliar with the minor prophets. It is found just after Obadiah, Jonah, and then Micah. Micah chapter 5. Micah 5 and verse 2. This last prophecy connects time, space, with eternity. Time and containment that we live with is nothing compared to God. He is eternal. And we read in verse 2, But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, who, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. This one, this one who is going to be the ruler in Israel has always existed. Let's review here for a moment what has been happening through all these prophecies. In the beginning, God created the world, and the world would have existed in a perfect state forever. But with the entrance of sin, sin brought death. And as people are born, people die. People are born, and then people die. And yet, there is this promise that there is going to be an undoing of death. There is this curse that's going to be lifted, and blessing is going to come upon all people through the lineage of Abraham. This person who is going to be born will also have an eternal household. In fact, he will be born into a line of death, but supernaturally. He's going to bring a great light and beacon of hope to the world. And you know why this person is able to bring a beacon of hope to the world? Because this person has always existed. We read that famous line and we get caught up in the sentimentality of Bethlehem, but that's the real space and time and location of where Jesus the Messiah was born. But the reality is he was always in existence. He doesn't wear out. He doesn't decay, and he lives independently of his creation, 
although allowed himself to become enmeshed with his creation. And that is good news for the weary. Jesus said, come unto me, all who are weary, and I will give you rest. And so we call all people to Christ. It's one of our values that we have articulated as a church family that we call all people to Christ. We don't look at people and wonder, we call all people to Christ. All people can come to Him. In Isaiah, I want us to turn back to Isaiah. Put your finger here because we need to look at Isaiah 40 and remember how great our God is. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 28 Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths may faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait For the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. As we age and as we get older, we become hit with the reality that we can't do everything. And that might hit some of us at a younger phase of life than at an older phase of life. And so that may cause us to become weighted down with burden. But the reality is there is blessing that is available to us in Christ. Psychological, emotional strength that comes from knowing that we are His and He is ours. There is strength that while all might be against us, if Christ be for us, nothing can be against us. Someone once said, we can live 40 days without food, 8 days without water, 4 minutes without air, but only a few seconds without hope. People need hope. What happens when you hope for something repeatedly and then you're let down? You become pessimistic, you become filled with despair. You become kind of like the boy who said, Hope is wishing for something you know ain't going to happen. Yeah, we're all going to be let down in life. But the reality is we need to shift our object of faith from people to the eternal God who does not grow weary and He lives forever and ever. God always keeps His promises. And I want to turn to one more passage here to read together as we close. Turn with me to Romans chapter 15. In Romans 15 verse 8, Paul is talking to people who are In conflict, people who, Jew and Gentile, are learning how to mesh together 
as the people of God. And he says this in verse 8, he says, For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. God became Jewish flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. And in verse 9, in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for His mercy. To us who are non-Jew, God's glory is seen and is merciful to us to make a way possible to know and enjoy God. And we keep reading in verse uh, 9, it says, As it is written, therefore I will praise your name among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again it is said, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, and in him will the Gentiles hope. And so he concludes his magnificent tract on salvation And he says this in verse 13, and this is my prayer for us here this morning. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. People need hope, and his name is Jesus. And I pray this Christmas season that by believing in God, we may abound in hope. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, thank you for these precious promises that are ours. All the promises which are in Christ, they they find their fulfillment in Him. And so this means that as heirs of these promises, we have all of your favor. We have all the reason to, to hope in you. And we thank you, dear Lord, for your graciousness to us. I pray, Lord, as this Christmas season comes, uh, that our hearts would be renewed and find close fellowship with you. In your name we pray, amen.